The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. Luke chapter 2, if you haven't been with us, today we're going to be covering verses 21, and we'll go down to verse 35. Last week we looked at the first 20 verses, uh, just a great passage there about uh, the birth of our blessed Savior the Lord Jesus and the witness of the shepherds, the witness of the angels of God. Let me read Luke chapter 2. So the context, last month and a half, almost two months, we've been the beginning of Luke, Luke chapter 1 and 2, and it's all about the birth of Christ, the preparation of the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. So we're still in that context and the events surrounding the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is appropriate now providentially because we are on the cusp of the Christmas season. Some places had Christmas trees up and Christmas decor already out there. So that's appropriate as the culture will be celebrating Christmas. Many times they don't know what they're celebrating, but we know that it's about the Lord Jesus Christ, his entry into the world, and what Scripture has to say about his birth. So it's rather timely. So follow along as I read Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 21. After the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God in light of the news that the Messiah had been born in Jerusalem of Joseph and Mary. So the birth of Jesus happens, verse 21 says, and when eight days had passed, eight days after the birth of Jesus, before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus. The name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man, he was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation or the comfort of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit in the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him, Jesus, into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, or literally, now, Master, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light, a revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed, and a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Amazing testimony. I don't know if you were paying attention to the news at all this week, the major headlines. Here was one major, and it was a major headline. Quote, this is this week. Amazon labels Christmas story as, quote, holiday fiction, end quote. What were they talking about? Well, it's the 
going to be maybe the number one best-selling story about Christmas for children this year. And Amazon is selling it, and they're advertising it, and that's what the, the headline. Amazon labels this, and what's this Christmas story about? The Christmas story was written by someone, and basically they use the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to talk about, or actually mostly Matthew and Luke, to talk about the birth of Jesus Christ. And it is advertised by Amazon as holiday fiction. Well, you can imagine my gut reaction when I read that. It was appalling. It was personally offensive. It was an absolute insult and blasphemous to God, especially in light of what we've been going through as a church congregation. We're going through the, the Gospel of Luke. For the last two months, we've been looking at the birth of Christ according to God's Word. And this is being promoted and disseminated and propagated literally across the world. For all to see. First thing that came to my mind when I saw that, that, oh wow, one of the largest corporations in the world is literally saying that the birth of Jesus Christ and its significance according to the scripture is fiction. It's not true. It's mythology. It's silliness. It's as silly as Santa Claus. And I was just reminded of Luke chapter 1, the sermon that we did at the very beginning, Luke 1, where Luke said, Luke, who was a real man, an educated man, an informed man, who let his readers know of the copious work and detail that he took in presenting his case to present the true story of the historical Jesus, his significance, who he was, to someone who was either a Christian or interested in, a, about, interested in Christianity. And the terminology that he used specifically in verse 2 and 3 of chapter 1 where Luke said that I'm writing these things and I am dependent upon those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. And if you've been paying attention as we've been going through Luke, that's what Luke is doing. He is quoting eyewitnesses. Luke is writing in the 60s AD. He's writing 30 years after Jesus died, rose, and ascended, and went back to heaven. Almost 30 years later, and what Luke is doing, he's with the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He had an opportunity, actually, to go back to Jerusalem in the 60s. 30 years later, Matthew already exists. It's being distributed. That was written in the 50s. And now Luke's writing his gospel in the 60s. This is 30 years after Christ. And there are people who are still alive who were eyewitnesses of who Jesus was, his ministry, all the way up until he ascended. And Luke talked to some of those people personally. One of those was Mary, the mother of Jesus. Eyewitnesses. We know that from Luke's writing, from his book. It's obvious. We have stories in the Gospel of Luke about Mary, things she said, things she prayed, things she sang that can be found nowhere else in Scripture. How did Luke know that? He talked to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And he emphasizes that phrase, that repeated refrain, that when this happened, Mary treasured these things up in her heart. Mary treasured these truths up in her heart. So Luke deliberately notes that, that from the time that the angel first spoke to Mary and said that she would be pregnant and give birth as a virgin to the Messiah, the Savior of the world, she treasured those things up in her heart. What does that mean? She kind of kept it secret and she was never going to forget it. And then Jesus is born. The Spirit of God moves on a man named Simeon. The Spirit of God moves on a woman named Anna in the temple, saying amazing things, things that Mary's heard for the first time in her life. And it says she treasured those things in her heart. She hid them away in her heart, and she would never forget it. She was an eyewitness of what God was doing through her as a frail, sinful, finite, faithful servant to bring the blessed Savior into the world. She was an eyewitness. She treasured them in her heart. 
She would never forget it. And then when Luke comes around 30 years after Christ left, Luke is talking to Mary, among other people. Eyewitnesses who were there, they know. Eyewitnesses, this is true history. This is not fiction. We can be encouraged by that. So that's what Luke says. These were eyewitnesses. They were reliable. By the way, all these witnesses that Luke is, he's just running a line of faithful witnesses. If you've, if you've noticed through the first two chapters, Zechariah, faithful priest, righteous man, loved God, eyewitness, father of John the Baptist. That was a witness he laid out. Zechariah's wife, Elizabeth, faithful woman of God, eyewitness. They had a son, John the Baptist, faithful, godly, God-called eyewitness. Now, in this next chapter, oh, the testimony of the shepherds, eyewitnesses. Joseph and Mary themselves, eyewitnesses, at least Mary, who was still alive when Luke was writing. And now in this chapter, chapter 2, the passage we're looking at this week and next week, more eyewitnesses, faithful eyewitnesses, reliable eyewitnesses, real historical people. A man named Simeon and a woman named Anna. Who are the, we've never heard of these people. Matthew doesn't mention them. Mark and John don't mention them. You can't find them anywhere in Paul's epistles. They're not in the Old Testament. Where did Simeon and Anna come from? Well, Luke is the one responsible for letting us know how significant they were. These two very significant people lend testimony to the reality of the events regarding Jesus Christ, his birth, his purpose, that he was sent by God. And the overarching principle to add to all of this as far as a testimony is the Trinity Almighty God himself, who led Luke, who inspired Luke to write down historical fact. You can count on it. That's why Luke tells us in Luke chapter 1, I'm writing these things based on the truth of eyewitnesses who knew exactly what happened in the life of Jesus, who he was, what happened when he was born. I did my homework. I'm very careful. I'm exacting. And here's your guarantee, Theophilus, and anybody else who would read Luke's account. I'm writing this all out and laying it out very carefully and chronologically as God would have me do so, so that for the purpose of that you, either unbeliever or believer, in the days of Luke or centuries after, so that for the purpose of that you may know the exact truth about the things that have been taught. What a wonderful promise. We keep saying that, so we're going to Luke and we're reading this. This is the exact truth, so that you may no, I hope that you came to church this morning thinking, you know, I'm going to hear the Word of God from Luke, and there's a beautiful promise there that we've read in Luke that, you know what, I'm going to get the exact truth of what happened 2,000 years ago from the pulpit, because that's what Luke said, the exact truth. We can know with 100% certainty in this postmodern world, the exact truth. Translations, uh, depending upon New American Standard or whatever, translate that differently, but the Christian Standard Bible is beautiful. It says, I'm writing these things down about Jesus using eyewitnesses so that you may know the certainty of what happened. The certain, you can have absolute certitude. Amen. I just, I want you to get that in your noggin so that you can be discerning so when you go out in the world and you are confronted with or it's thrown in your face that the story about Jesus is fiction that you know the truth. No, it's not. That is falsehood to say that the Christmas story about Jesus is fiction, that the Bible is not true, that the Bible is fable, it's religious myth. No, it's, it's historical fact. It's the very Word of God. It changes lives. It changes eternity for people. God's living Word. So that's our perspective. I just wanted to encourage your hearts with that, that you can be certain, at least as far as the text goes, everything I say in the text, it's true. It really happened. And it happens exactly the way Luke described it as he was led by the Spirit. So let's go ahead and look at Luke's true 
factual, historical, inviolable, binding, authoritative account of true history regarding the first Christmas story. Jesus has been born, and now Luke picks up the story. Very significant events. I think what Luke is doing strategically, he's just fulfilling the promise that he made in chapter 1, verse 2, 3, and 4. He said, you know what? Because he's probably, you know, there are Jews out there who were skeptics at this time in the 60s. The Jews were trained systematically for hundreds and hundreds of years based on the book of Moses, the five books of Moses, and particularly Deuteronomy, in terms of the way to think, the, the way to establish truth, their epistemology, their theory of truth, and a way to validate truth and validate facts. This also played into their uh, system of jurisprudence or how they did law. So it was clear. It's in the book of Deuteronomy and elsewhere in the Law of Moses, uh, Deuteronomy 19, I think it is, it says you cannot establish anything with respect to uh, making an allegation without the testimony of two or three witnesses, and they had to be two or three reliable witnesses who said the exact same thing. In other words, you can't just accuse somebody of something, pulling that out of thin air because you don't like that person. That happens all the time here in America and all over the world. False accusations, false accusations, false accusations, false accusations. The Jewish mind, the godly mind, the biblical mind, is that no, you can't validate anything unless there's a testimony of two or three witnesses. And, and God abides by that principle. He's doing that in the Gospel of Luke. Luke is doing that. He knows that's the only legitimate way to establish truth and historical fact. So he's laying out one reliable witness after another. And by the way, it's not just any witnesses. It's reliable witnesses, faithful witnesses. And so far, the witnesses that have been laid out in the Bible by Luke, they are all faithful. They are impeccable. They are full of integrity. They are godly. They love God. Every one of them. Uh, Luke chapter 1 says that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous. What does that mean, to be righteous? It means that they were saved by God. No, literally, they were made right by God. At some point, they were saved by God. In other words, it means they're believers. They're righteous. That's what it means. They were made right by God. It doesn't mean they're working for their salvation. It doesn't mean that they were better than anybody else. It doesn't mean they did things to please God, and he said, oh, okay, I will, I will save you as a result. I like you better than that person. They were made righteous. God imputed his righteousness to them legally, instantaneously, based on grace, through faith, apart from works. That, that's what it means that Zacharias and Elizabeth were righteous. They were saved. They were born again. They were believers. They knew God. They were adopted. They were redeemed. They were forgiven. They were reconciled. They were uh, believers who knew and loved God. God changed their nature. He changed their status. He made a legal rendering. You are not guilty. You are in the family of God. They weren't perfect yet. That's in glory, but they were made righteous. That's what it means. They were reliable witnesses who loved and knew God because they were righteous. And then he says in the Gospel of Matthew that Joseph was righteous. Joseph, a righteous young man. He knew God. He was saved. The imputation of Christ, uh, the righteousness of God was given unto Joseph as a gift, apart from works, by grace, through faith. His status before God was he was a child of God. He knew God probably as a teenager. He loved God. Matthew 1, Joseph was righteous. So there's a good witness. Then there was Mary. She was an eyewitness. Luke already said that she had favor with God. What does that mean? She was righteous. She was saved. As a young woman, maybe as a, a, even before becoming a teenager, she came to faith in God, in Yahweh. And she knew she was a sinner. She needed a Savior. And script Luke says she found favor with God. 
She was righteous. She was a believer. She was a reliable witness. And now we meet Simeon. We're going to meet Anna next week. They are both called righteous. They know God. They love God. They're children of God. Both of them are old in the season of life where they're at the end. And they both were from, apparently, Jerusalem. And they were both seen around the temple. And they were both probably very highly respected in the community. Reliable, credible witnesses, full of integrity, full of spiritual character. So Luke is laboring to establish this in fulfillment of Deuteronomy, I think, laying out these reliable witnesses. He does a great job. So let's look at uh, 21 through 35. And, and what I put as the title here is the presentation of Jesus the Messiah, the presentation. We had his birth, and now he is presented as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. The Messiah had been promised throughout the Old Testament False messiahs had been proclaimed, self-proclaimed messiahs prior to Jesus. Even in the days right after Jesus, there were self-proclaimed messiahs. So the true messiah has credentials. True messiah, his credentials are in the Bible. They're in the Old Testament because it was a Jewish messiah, a Jewish messiah who would be presenting to the world. So there were credentials. There was a profile. There were precedents. There were scriptures. There were prophecies and pictures that he had to fulfill in order to be the true Messiah. And that could be validated, validated with truth, the testimony of two or three witnesses. And that's, that's what uh, Luke does here, is he's presenting Jesus as the legitimate and only Messiah and Savior of the world because he meets the qualifications. And that's in our passage here. So let me divide this, three, uh, this narrative here just into three chunks to help us understand it and walk through it with three points of emphasis in presenting Jesus as Messiah. The first point of emphasis, verses 21 to 25, I think I call that the... The obligation, the obligation. Uh, the Messiah was obligated to fulfill specific things regarding prophecies and commands given in the Old Testament. And we see Jesus fulfill these obligatory commands, even his parents have to be a part of that. So the obligation, he has to fulfill and obey the Old Testament law. He couldn't go rogue and, oh, you know what, I, I'm the Messiah, I don't need to do that, I don't care what Moses said. By the way, I'm greater than Moses, I'm the Messiah. No, it was incumbent upon the Messiah to fulfill what God has asked in the Old Testament with respect to Old Testament. Do you remember when uh, John the Baptist, Jesus went to John the Baptist to get baptized, and, and John was a little reluctant, no, more than a little reluctant. He's like, no, I'm a, man, you're the Messiah. I am not baptizing you. And Jesus didn't say, yeah, you're right. I created you, John the Baptist. I don't need... No. Jesus said, no, I, you need to baptize me. And why? In order to fulfill all righteousness. Because it was God's will, because He sanctioned and ordained John the Baptist as a true, legitimate prophet with a baptizing ministry. In order to validate that ministry, Jesus had to fall under the umbrella of John's leadership as the second Elijah. So in order to fulfill all righteousness and what prophecies there were about the coming. Elijah, I need to get baptized, even though he wasn't a sinner. Jesus didn't get baptized to get sin forgiven or that he was a sinner at all. Same thing here. Jesus is uh, subjected to certain requirements of the law of Moses, not because he is a sinner, but in order to fulfill all righteousness. And also his parents, Joseph and Mary, they actually do the works of the law because they are sinful. So we see that. So there's obligation uh, the second point there is revelation. That's verses 26 to 32. There is new divine 
supernatural, special revelation given for the first time in history to this obscure man who was a godly man named Simeon with respect to validating that Jesus, the baby, was the Messiah and Savior of the world. So there's revelation. That's what I mean by revelation. Direct, supernatural, prophetic revelation given to Simeon. We don't know if Simeon ever gave revelation prior to this, but we know he did it here. So maybe it wasn't that he was a prophet, but the Spirit of God moved on him and spoke new truth right there on the spot. And it was shocking. It was amazing. It was alarming. It was frightening. It was exciting. And Mary and Joseph were just listening and taking it all in, hiding it in her heart. And then the last part in the presentation of Jesus as Messiah is 33 to 35, and that's the humiliation. Humiliation. Uh, the revelation is kind of exciting and ends with pretty much good news, and then you get some bad news that's coming up for Joseph and Mary and Jesus, 33 to 35. The, humili- the Messiah wasn't just a conquering king. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were looking for a Messiah who was a political savior, who would save them from the government of Rome. That's primarily what they were looking for. They were not looking for a personal Savior who would die a criminal's death on behalf of their evil, wicked sins that condemned them to hell because the Pharisees and Sadducees, they didn't think they had any sin. And they dominated the Israelite culture. Humiliation. So let's go ahead and look at those three things. First, let's look at the obligation. Jesus had to fulfill the law. Galatians 4.4 says that at God's right time, providentially in fulfillment of all history, in God's calendar, and God is in total control. He is sovereign. History is His story. Everything's going exactly the way it should at the exact right time. And all these prophecies that have been made for hundreds of years regarding the coming Messiah and Savior of the world, that all came together and fruition just at the right time when Jesus was born. And that's what Galatians 4.4 says. At just the right time, Jesus the Messiah was born of a woman, born of a woman, key phrase, born under the law. You see that right here. That's the obligation. Jesus was born under the law. Both of his parents were Jewish, raised in the synagogue, went to the temple, or at least the parents of their parents. They loved God. They were righteous. They were conscientious of Mosaic Scripture. They wanted to please God, obey God. They wanted to follow through on what the law of God and the law of Moses required. You see the phrase, the law of God or the law of Moses, several times in this passage. You see it in verse 22, the law of Moses. Verse 23, the law of the Lord. Verse 24, the law of the Lord. Then you have Moses' law quoted two times in verse 23 and also in verse 24. It quotes Exodus 13 at the Passover under the days of Moses, and then it quotes uh, Leviticus chapter 12. So there's an obligation. Mary and Joseph, they love God. They want to honor Yahweh. They know what they need to do in light of being Jews. And this had to do with respect to her being pregnant and giving birth to a child. Exodus chapter 13, at the time of the Passover, just before the Exodus in the days of Moses, God told Moses and Israel that one of the things they needed to do at the time of Passover and perpetually is any firstborn male born into a family, that male belongs to the Lord and he needs to be dedicated to the Lord accordingly. He needs to be dedicated, not as a priest, but just recognition that God is the giver of life. So if I'm going to have 11 kids, I take the, the first male and symbolically dedicate him to the Lord and saying, God, you are the giver of life. You've opened up my wife's womb. You've made us parents. We thank you for that. And maybe other children will follow. And you're really dedicating the next generation, hopefully, of God-fearing people. That's what the idea was there in Exodus 13. 
this was part of the law. So if Mary and Joseph wanted to be obedient, this is their first child. Mary was a virgin. Mary had other children. She had at least two more boys, James and Jude, who wrote books in the New Testament. They came after Jesus, half-brothers of Jesus. Then they had daughters, but Jesus was the first male child, and so they needed to dedicate Jesus to the Lord. They didn't have to do this with Jude and James and, and other sons that came later, but this was fulfilling Exodus 13. He even quotes Exodus 13 and verse 23. Every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy unto the Lord. You saw uh, Hannah do this with her son in Samuel in obedience to this command. Samuel was the firstborn male. He needs to be dedicated to the Lord. Lord, thank you. It's like uh, the first harvest. God, thank you for the harvest and being the provider and giver of life. First fruits, if you will. Then the other law that they were fulfilling and required to fulfill is Leviticus 12. I want us to look at it because it's a short chapter. So, and you know, nobody ever reads Leviticus. They skip over it. So, hey, let's read Leviticus. There's actually some good stuff in there. I don't think Leviticus gets a fair shake from people. Taking pot shots all the time. There's some good stories in there. There's, it's all edifying. We need to know all of it. It's, it's all profitable. It's all inspired. If you want to know your New Testament, you've got to know the Old Testament. And it, another credit to Joseph and Mary, they're probably teenagers. We don't know. Uh, they could be anywhere from 13, 14, all the way up to 19, 20. It doesn't give their age. But they were of marrying age somewhere in there, but it's amazing. They knew the Lord. I mean, a teenagers that knew the Lord, number one, we know plenty of teenagers that don't, right? You never know where your teenagers are. These teenagers, they loved God. Not only that, they were devout. They were Not only that, they knew the law of the Lord. Did you know that if you were a Jew, you had to know 613 laws? Try memorizing 613. I would be in a panic all the time. Wait, which of the, wait, 532 have I violated today? Oh, man, I don't even know them all. 613 laws. So Leviticus 12, listen to this. Um, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, when a woman gives birth, okay, that's Mary, she's a Jew, she's under the Mosaic law, when she gives birth, just gave birth to Jesus, and bears a male child, how do you know a child was male when it's born? Obviously, that's how. There's no guessing. You don't identify it, and you don't wait till it grows up to identify itself. It's identified right at birth. It's now it's identified in the womb. You don't identify your identity. You don't identify your gender. Actually, we do, and we do it at birth. That's what the Bible says. And there are only two options, by the way, male and female. That's it. Can't believe I have to say this. Five years ago, I wouldn't have to say these things. There are two genders, male and female. They do not change. And they are determined by Almighty God. They are determined when? By the DNA. When? In the womb. When? Before birth. When? At conception. When? Before conception. When? In eternity past. God is the author of life. God is the giver of life. Said to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 1, I knew you, Jeremiah, before you were born. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah, I called you to be a prophet before you were born. God is naming people before they're born. John was named before he was born. He was called a he before he was born. Jesus is named before he was born. So when a woman gives birth and bears a male child that is obvious to all, then the mother shall be unclean for seven days. Well, that's weird. Unclean? Okay, it doesn't mean sinful. 
It means ceremonially unclean. Why? Because God said so. That's the best answer we got. This is the law. God uses the law. He makes these laws, 613 laws, because he's trying to teach his people. So what is the law of Moses? It's a pedagogical tool. It's a tutoring instrument. That's what it is. Galatians says that very clearly. The law was added or is used by God as a tutor, a pedagogy to teach us things that we need to know. Like what? Well, about sin. Did you know that we wouldn't know sin unless God gave us the law? The law defines sin. So why did God give us the law? To define sin, to make clear lines of demarcation. This is right. This is wrong. This is male. This is female. This is what you do. So the law defines sin and obedience. That's why God gave the law. And God also gave us the law, according to the book of Galatians, to lead us to Christ. In other words, to impress that sin upon us, to make us realize, wow, we are lawbreakers. 613 laws, I violate all of them all the time. And not just externally, but in my own mind, in my thought life. I am wicked. That's what Paul said about himself in Romans. So the law was given to define sin. The law was given to God's people to press it down upon them, to convict them about their own sin and show them they need a Savior. God, I need a Savior. To lead us to Christ. That's what Galatians says. That's why God gave the law. God also gave the law to define God's character. We wouldn't, do you know that we wouldn't know what God is like in His attributes and His character unless we had written revelation from God? You and I, we know absolutely, virtually nothing about God's attributes, His personal attributes, from intuition from just common sense, human logic, human wisdom, philosophy, nothing, nada, zippo. When you try to do that, you come up with false religion. We do know that God exists. That's Romans 1. We know that He's the creator. There's a minimum amount of information we know through conscience and creation. But in terms of His personal characteristics, that He is a, a trinity, that He is very specific things about Him, we don't know that except from the revelation of Scripture. And much of the revelation of Scripture that reveals the character and the nature of God is the law of Moses. Those laws tell us about God because he's the lawgiver. Well, this guy gave this God gave these laws. This says something about the lawgiver. The law always speaks something of the lawgiver. Maybe at your house you had seven laws of the house on the refrigerator. And I could walk into that house and say, Wow, I just learned a lot about your parents. You really got to do these seven things? You really can't do that? Or maybe it's just the opposite. Man, your parents, they are nice. I have 21 laws on my refrigerator. So laws always tell something about the lawgiver. So that's the purpose of the law here. Revealing sin, reminding them of sin, showing them a need for a Savior. Mary is unclean. What does that mean? She had a baby. She gave forth an issue of blood. It was arduous. It was painful, the process of nine months of pregnancy, and then the actual process of birth, the most horrific, painful thing she'd ever go through in her life, and she's probably screaming at Joseph while he was there, you did this. No, it's Adam did that. And it's a reminder of sin, how we got into this mess. And that's what these laws did, reminding us continually of sin and the need of a Savior. And so if she had a male child, she was unclean for seven days. As in the days of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin, the baby's foreskin, if it's a male, shall be circumcised. So Jesus was circumcised in fulfillment of the law on the eighth day. And that was painful. Another reminder of sin. Sin deserves pain. 
Sin requires shed blood. That's circumcision. And at the same time, there's a promise, the, the covenant of God that comes with that. Then she shall remain in her blood uh, of her purification for 33 days, if it's a male child. 33 days plus 7 is 40 days. Mary will be unclean. As a result, she shall not touch any consecrated thing nor enter the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. For 40 days, Mary would not be allowed to go to the temple or interact hands-on with anything sacred regarding the temple. She was banned from the temple for 40 days. Wow, that's unfair. No, that's a reminder from God. She is sinful. Humanity is sinful. You need an intervention from a gracious, holy, loving God with a blood sacrifice to save you from your sins and to purify you. These are all tutorials of the lesson about sin. 40 days if it was a, a boy. Well, what if Mary gave birth to a daughter? Well, it would be different. Uh, verse 5, but if she bears a female child, then she shall be unclean for two weeks. Male child, you're unclean for seven days. Birth to a female child, 14 days. Say what? That's not fair. Seven and 14, well, if that's your attitude, it gets more unfair. Check it out. Then she shall be unclean for two weeks and in her as in her menstruation, and she shall remain in the blood of her purification for 66 days. 66 plus 14, that's 80. 80 days if you gave birth to a female child. 80 days unclean. 80 days you can't go to the temple. 80 days you have to abstain. 80 days stay away from that which is sick. 80 days of unclean. For the male, it was only 40 days. 48, well, that's not fair. Why did God do that? It's because, well, everybody knows boys are better than girls. That's what, that's what junior high boys believe. That's why they're not interpreting this passage. But anyway, we don't know uh, other than, I mean, it's not like it's all just in favor of the guys. I mean, it just said the, the male had to be circumcised. Ouch! Females do not get circumcised. So maybe this was God compensating for female babies being allowed into the covenant of the community of Israel. That's one possibility. No circumcision, so we'll double the time of uncleanness. I think another blatant, obvious one is that God is committed to making or preserving distinctions between male and female. He does it all throughout the Bible. Because when God created the first humans, he created the two of them, male and female. He even says that in Genesis 1.27. I will make them, he repeats it. Let us make man, let's make humanity in my image, in the image of God, he shall make them male and female. And in the image of God, he created them male and female. And God preserves that distinction all throughout biblical history, all the way up until today, and he will all throughout history on earth. No one will alter that or change that. I don't care what they try to do. Male and female, you can never change. Did you know that you can never change the DNA of a human being? You can do whatever you want on the outside. All kinds of surgery and medicine and whatever. You're not changing the DNA that God gave them. XXXY, settled, done, forever. And male and female fully reflect the complete image of God. A, man, a, human, a male doesn't fully reflect the image of God. A female by herself doesn't fully reflect the image of God. Male and female together fully reflect the image of God perfectly. Can't be tampered with. So all throughout these laws, you're going to see that this is for males, this is for females. This is for, well, why, why are you doing that? Preserving the distinctions. So this is kind of interesting. So you've got females, there are a lot of females can't be going to the temple even if they wanted to, especially those who lived in Jerusalem. If they're going through their monthly menstruation period, they can't go to the temple. They're unclean. 
they're out for a while. And when they have a baby, they're out for a while, a longer while. Then you got the male priests. They don't have that issue. They can stay the priest all the time. Then you got Anna, uh, the, the woman we're going to meet in a minute or next week. She was at the temple all the time every day. Well, not literally, because there were times where she was unclean, ceremonially speaking, but otherwise she was there. So uh, then Luke 12 goes on. Listen carefully. Uh, when the days of her purification are completed, so for Jesus it was, we take him on the, she's unclean for seven days. On the eighth day, he gets circumcised. They name him the time of circumcision. And then for the next 33 days, Mary has to stay away from the temple. And she's considered unclean. Well, how do you resolve that? Well, uh, God gives a way to purify that ceremonial uncleanness. And when the days of her purification are completed, at the end of the 40 days, for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the temple, now it's the temple, a, a one-year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or turtle dove for a sin offering for sin. So Mary had to go, I'm unclean, take her lamb to the priest, slaughter, kill that. It was a live lamb, it was a cute lamb, it was a healthy lamb, it was a perfect lamb, and the priest would cut it and slice it and blood squirting all over, and there, that, that lamb is screaming and blood squirting everywhere. That was a picture of Death because of sin. Graphic. We would consider that just brutally vile today if we saw that. People would be aghast. Then he shall offer it up before the Lord and make atonement for her, a covering for her sin, and shall be cleansed from the flow of her blood. This is the law. And then verse 8, but if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves and two pigeons. Okay. So if you couldn't afford a lamb, then you, if you were, didn't have as much money, you could buy Cheaper pigeons, two turtle doves, and offer them instead of a lamb. Mary and Joseph offered two turtle doves. They didn't have any money. That's what it says in the passage. Go back to Luke 2. So Mary and Joseph do exactly what God requires in his law. Uh, also, it says in Leviticus 12 that she is to offer these sacrifices on her behalf for her sin, for her atonement. Mary admitted and knew she was a sinner. She needed a Savior. She was not sinless. She was just as wicked and, and vile in, in her nature as anybody else, but she loved God. But she needed a sacrifice. She needed a mediator. And her sins were forgiven, by the way, by this act. Not because the animal was sacrificed, but coupled with faith. This is what God requires in obedience to God. Then God favored her, provided cleansing and atonement or covering in light of the sacrifice of Christ, which provided total eternal forgiveness. So going back to Luke 2, it says... Uh, and when the days for purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord in fulfillment of Exodus 13 as the firstborn male in verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice, a sin sacrifice. Joseph and Mary were reminded once again, they've brought another sinner into the world. That's why it required sacrifice. According to Moses, Jesus was not a sinner, but in order to fulfill all righteousness, the sin sacrifices were offered on behalf of Mary and Joseph. They would have children in the future who would be sinful. Jesus had no sin. This was in fulfillment of the law. End of verse 24, they offered a pair of turtle doves. They didn't have any money. Wait, whoa, wait a minute. I thought the, the wise men brought uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh that was worth hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars. Yeah, well, it was. The wise men hadn't arrived yet, clearly. This is only day eight. The wise men arrive later and offer 
all these riches fit for a king when they would have money. Here they don't have any money. So we need to reevaluate our nativity scene at home when you pull it out this Christmas. You got your figurines, you got the wise, you got the shepherd, you got the angel, you got the wise, what in the world are the wise men doing there? And you don't have Simeon there. Simeon came before the wise men. Same day, Anna, we're going to see her. Why, why do you not in your nativity set have a statue of Simeon and Anna? You should. So on the day, I'm just going to encourage you. You get your nativity scene. You got Jesus, uh, baby Jesus, Joseph, Mary, and maybe a shepherd or two. Angel, mm, questionable about when he showed up. You got your animals, and then a little further away, eight days away, walking eight days away, you got Simeon and Anna. And then like three months away, over on the piano state, you got the wise men, because they could be months, maybe years away. That's just, you know, being historically accurate. Okay, let's go on. So they fulfill out of a godliness, sensitivity to God, wanting to be obedient, a young couple, devout. They want to fulfill the law of God, and they want to make sure that their son, who is the Messiah and Savior of the world, is fulfilling all righteousness. Because, if, if you know, if they didn't circumcise Jesus on the eighth day, could Galatians 4.4 actually say that Jesus was born in fulfillment of the law, fulfilling all, fulfilling all righteousness? Some of his perfect fulfillment of the law was contingent upon his sinful parents. That's scary. And God providentially, graciously allowed them to do that. Let's go on to the revelation from this man named Simeon. Verse 25, and there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. He's in Jerusalem, apparently lives there. And this man was righteous and devout. There it is. He's a believer. He was made right by God, and as a result, he was devout. He had godly behavior and attitudes that resulted in the fact that God made him righteous. That's what that means. He wasn't perfect. He wasn't sinless. He wasn't better than anybody else. He loved God and knew God. God made him righteous by grace, through faith, apart from works. He lived in Jerusalem. He was a Jew. He was a man of God. He knew the Scriptures. He knew the Old Testament. He knew the Old Testament prophecies. As a result, he was looking for, deliberately, intently, specifically, the consolation of Israel. What is that? The comfort of Israel. What is that? Six times in the book of Isaiah, it calls the Messiah the consolation of Israel, the comfort of Israel, the comforter. The one to come was the comforter. That's the Messiah. He is the comforter. He would comfort his people. He would comfort Israel. He would comfort individual sinners who believed in Yahweh. That was the Messiah. Simeon has been his whole life long. He's elderly now. He's about to die. He could be in his 70s and 80s for all we know. And he has been literally, unlike everybody else surrounding him. By the way, the, the city is impacted with people because of the census. People are from pilgrims all over the then-known world, mulling around, bustling everywhere. The, the temple is filled with all kinds of people. And then God providentially selects Simeon and pulls him out of the crowd so that he makes... Sure, there's a providential meeting between Simeon and Joseph and Mary. We don't even know if Joseph and Mary even knew who Simeon was. God was in charge here. He's going to use Simeon as a one-time prophet. And he was a man of God. And he was one of the faithful. Do you think the Pharisees and Sadducees who dominated that area, 6,000 plus Pharisees, do you think they were praying, dear God, please bring uh, the Savior, the Messiah, who can die on behalf of my sin and protect our these humble, not, no, not even close. Here's the faithful remnant, Simeon. He, that's how he's praying. He's looking for the consolation of Israel. He's looking for the blessed Messiah. He's, he's studying the book of Isaiah, apparently. God honors his faithfulness. God answer, answers his prayer. God honors his perseverance and patience. He's one of those 
people that was probably mocked if they heard him that, oh, the Messiah could come at any time. The Messiah could come at any time. Can you imagine what ridicule he's probably subjected to? Foolishness. You idiot. God's been silent for 400 years. I mean, what are you talking about? Name the last prophet. Oh, the Messiah could come at any time. The Messiah could come. And he's praying in accordance with God's word. That's how he's praying. Then it says, uh, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that it would not, he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. There it is. The Spirit of God came upon him in a unique way to give this one-time prophecy to him and reveal to him that the Messiah was here. The Messiah had arrived. The Messiah is before you. The Messiah is named Jesus. The Messiah is in the temple. There are his parents. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. He's being led by the Spirit of God. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for Jesus the custom of the law, Simeon just goes right up and takes the baby. And the parents are like, whoa, who's this elderly man grabbing my baby? Well, the Spirit of God led him to do that. And they allowed him to do it. But they are a little shocked and alarmed as they treasure these things up in their heart. Simeon did this to carry out for him the custom of the law. Uh, Then he took baby Jesus into his arms and blessed God. And, and said a prayer. And he said, now master. Now he called, not Lord, Kurios, not Theos, God. It's now master, despot. God, you are in charge. I am your slave. And now, now is the time. The word now should be there. If you have a translation that doesn't say now, it should be there. Now, now master, now Lord, this day, right now, here it is, what I've prayed for. It has arrived. Thank you, God, for your graciousness. Now the Savior is here in fulfillment of Scripture. I get to see it with my own eyes. I get to handle him with my own hands. And now you are releasing your bondservant, me, to depart in peace. I can die now. I can die now, privileged and in peace with answered prayer according to your word, the Old Testament that prophesied the coming of a Savior. For my eyes have seen your salvation. There it is. He said, Jesus is the way of salvation. I have seen your salvation. I witness, which Luke is looking for, which you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples. And then he quotes from Isaiah. This Savior is not just a Savior for the Jews. He's a Savior for the whole world, Gentiles as well. Six times, at least, Isaiah said that the Messiah would be Savior of even Gentiles who believe. He's a light of the revelation of the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. What a time and day of rejoicing. That is the revelation, confirming that Jesus is Messiah. And then this passage closes with some sobering news, reality. It needed to happen. Suffering then glory, verses 33 to 35, the humiliation of this great Savior. His death. Humiliation is used to refer to Jesus' suffering and death, the humiliation of Christ. Verse 33, and his father and mother, Jesus' parents, mother and Joseph, uh, Joseph and Mary, they were amazed at the things that Simon was saying. Simeon. Wow. Verse 34, and then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, good news, This child is appointed for the fall. Well, there's good and bad news. This child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel. Good news, bad news. Jesus. Jesus draws a line in the sand. Good news, bad news. Your attitude about Jesus, your commitment to Jesus, what you say about Jesus, reveals your heart, and it determines your destiny. Jesus and him alone. And that's what you see here. Hearts will be revealed at the end of verse 35. With this Messiah, this revelation of Jesus, it will be the fall of many. What does that mean? Those who collapse before God. God's condemnation, God's rejection, God's wrath 
Why? Because they did not believe in Jesus as Messiah. That's the bad news. But the good news is Jesus will also save many. The rise of many, the coming back from spiritual death of many because of believing in Christ as Savior and Lord, and not just in Israel, but beyond for all the ages, that Jesus will impart eternal life to anyone who believe in Him and His work. And He will also be for a sign to be opposed. Verse 35, and Mary, I need to tell you this, a sword will pierce even your own soul. I, I know it's been exciting meeting Gabriel, the angel, and saying you're going to be uh, the mother of, of the Lord and the Savior Himself. And the good news about Elizabeth and John the Baptist and, and all these blessings and, and the blessing that I just said about through the prayer I just gave, but there's going to be a, a heart-rendering suffering you're going to go through, and that's her heart. Her, she would be pierced like a sword into her soul, Mary would, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So this was God being gracious to Mary to prepare her. It's not all just good and exciting news. Being the mother of the Messiah comes with its prophetic biblical consequences that have already been predicted. Psalm 22 said that the Messiah would be pierced in his hands and his feet. And Mary, you're the mother, you're going to see that. Your whole life might be sorrow. Three years of his ministry would be sorrowful for Mary in many ways. His total, utter rejection. That last week, the week of passion. Maybe Mary was sitting in the crowd as people were screaming for his blood before Pilate. Crucify him! Cru-! And then there's Mary. What could she do among the crowd? She follows him as he's scourged and dragged out in public and humiliated to the cross, to the foot of the cross. And Luke ni- or John 19 says Jesus was at, I mean, Mary was at the foot of Jesus' cross. Probably for all six to eight hours he was crucified. She's there at the foot, seeing her son die, her beloved son die, her sinless son die, the Savior die, pierced to the soul in fulfillment of Scripture. And God graciously allowed her to sustain that and persevere and go through that suffering so that she also will be a partaker of glory yet to come at his resurrection. What a beautiful and blessed story, the presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I'd just remind all of us, just simply, Jesus, he's the dividing line, isn't he? He's the line in the sand. You bring up his name to anybody, and it's going to reveal their heart, and it could also reveal their destiny as to what they do with Christ. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, your gracious provision of giving him unto the world. Jews and Gentiles alike, of all who would believe in him as the God-man, as the only Savior, as the only way to you. And we thank you that we can celebrate that great reality during Christmas and really every day in our own lives. We pray that you're glorified in all that we do. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com. 